Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything related to the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Cowie, I am a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter and apparently now a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within, arguably, the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free each and every week on scottcowie.com, on Stitcher Radio, and now on iTunes. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, let them know what's going on over here. But for now, enjoy the show. Guest this week on the podcast, Greg Howe. Phenomenal guitar player with some amazing stories. You're going to love this if you're a fan of Michael Jackson. Of course, we've had Orianthe on before. We've had Jennifer Batten. Two girls who have shared the stage with Michael Jackson, but Greg's story, if anything, betters theirs when it comes to how that gig came about. Of course, I'm talking about the gig with Michael Jackson himself. We talk about Justin Timberlake as well. We talk about Christian Aguilera. It's all coming up. It's going to be a good one. Before we get to the interview with Greg Howe, I am joined by my friend Nora Germain, one of the greatest violin players in the world, my personal favourite. How are we, Nora? I'm great. How are you? You know me, Nora. I can't complain. Never do. Very, very exciting period of time for your good self. Uh, The other day, you made a blockbuster announcement on the internet. It's been doing the rounds on Facebook, on Twitter, all the social media platforms. For anybody that hasn't heard, tell us all about it just now. Okay, so I'm doing my first ever Pledge Music campaign. And for those of you that don't know about Pledge Music, it's this amazing um, crowdfunding platform for musicians. Um, And it's different than Indiegogo. It's different than Kickstarter. It's way cooler. And um, I'm so happy to be doing this campaign with them because I'm putting out my fourth album. And also my first ever book so i've got a book and i've got an album and i am just so excited so you have to go check it out on pledge music you've got to put in uh pledgemusic.com slash projects slash nora germain and then i'll be there and you can watch the video it's really funny well i tried to make it funny i don't know if it's funny but it's there and yeah i hope you guys like it all yeah so tell us about the book. Obviously, your album, for anybody that's not familiar with you, they need to check out, as well as checking out the link that you just mentioned, norasgermain.com, YouTube Nora Germain, uh, amazing, talented uh, violin player, of course. But tell us about the book. I don't know anything about the book so far. What does that involve? Um, yeah, so the book, it's meant to be an inspirational book. So I basically wanted to write something that I thought other people could take something away from that would be constructive to use in their own life as a musician, or I hope that anybody can read it, basketball players, chefs, uh, anyone. Um, But yeah, so it's a book about basically uh, my life, how I got started playing, why I played jazz, um, because a lot of people ask me, you know, how did you get into doing this? So I explain that a little bit and talk about, you know, why it's been such a wonderful thing in my life. But then the rest of it is um, some funny stories, um, philosophies that other musicians have told me. It's just sort of um, a mix of sort of inspirational little uh, chapters that I hope everyone can take something away from. Yeah. Amazing. Now, do you mention me in the book? Yes, of course. Do you actually? You don't, do you? No, it's there. 
I've written it. It's there. No, you haven't. Have you honestly mentioned me in the book? Oh, yeah. I don't know whether you're kidding or not. If you have, that will be the greatest. No, I'm really serious. Yeah, I'm totally serious. You mentioned me in it. Scott, you're my greatest inspiration. You're winding me up because if I'll, I'll get all excited about this and then I'll read your book and then I'll find out that I'm not in it. But I'm, I'm, you, I'm, you are in it. You are in it. You are. Yeah. She's bullshitting you, ladies and gentlemen. I, I'm, no, I swear. I really, I, I'm serious. You are in it. You deserve to be in it. Come on. She's bullshitting everybody. I'm not, and I'm, if I'm in this book, it's going to be the greatest thing ever. So it's worth buying the book just to find out what Nora's written about me. No doubt there'll be some dreadful, <laughs> dreadful things. Um, okay, so Nora's your main on the podcast, and we're going to get right down to the interview with Greg. How, by the way, everyone that's been listening in, keep your emails coming in because we're going to reconvene with Love Advice next week. Okay, skowiemusic at gmail.com. For anybody that's not familiar with this segment of the podcast, Nora and I answer your emails, uh, give you love advice, give you relationship advice. Nora's been on fire in recent weeks, been helping out everybody across the globe with their love problems. Um, so uh, keep email, emailing in. I can't even speak today. We're not going to edit that out because it's live. It is what it is. And now we're going to get an interview with Greg. Let's get right down to it. Okay, I am back on the Talk Music Podcast with Greg. How how are you, Greg? Doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm 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 doing good. I was looking at some of your uh, YouTube clips earlier. Um, really, really impressive CV. But let's go back a little bit to when you actually started playing guitar. Um, what guitarist and what music inspired you to to pick up the instrument? Well, I think when I was young, it was everything. Uh, honestly, when I uh, as far back as I can remember, I've always uh, been attracted to music. Music was just part of my whole nature. So I, I just kind of came out of the womb understanding rhythm and, and harmony. And uh, I, we had a guitar laying around the house all the time, and I used to just kind of play with it. Um, and I didn't take it too seriously. I was, you know, my brother and I were interested in writing songs more so than anything else. We, we, we just like writing songs. And uh, eventually my father said that uh, if we're going to play around with this guitar, we should take guitar lessons. So I, I took about three guitar lessons. I didn't really learn anything. <laughs> so uh, at that time we had kids, we had foster kids that were staying at our house. I was probably about 10 years old. And uh, some of these teenagers were around 15 or 16. And one of them played guitar and showed me open chords. Uh, and that was really the beginning of my guitar playing. I started to, and that was great for me because suddenly I was able to uh, accompany the songs that we would write with, with actual real background music. So that, that was great for a couple of years. Um, and then this kid who had left eventually came back to visit maybe about a year later and we got together and played guitar. And he, at, at one point during our, playing session he bent a note and i thought that was the coolest thing i'd ever heard so suddenly i was bending notes on my guitar everywhere and um and that's really when i started to notice lead guitar playing because i had never even actually taken notice of it before that so suddenly now i was listening to songs on the radio and hearing the guitar and trying to simulate them and then of course i got into jimmy page who at that time was the sort of rock guitar guy and I found it pretty easy to simulate and mimic a lot of his guitar solos. So he was probably the first major influence on me. But I, I still wasn't super serious about electric guitar soloing because that stuff actually came pretty easy for me. It wasn't until Van Halen came out 
that I suddenly felt like there was things I was hearing. There were things I was hearing that uh, were were definitely new and I, that I didn't understand. And so I really became uh, intrigued with Van Halen and listening to a lot of his stuff and trying to dissect and figure out what he was doing. And uh, eventually went to a concert with some friends of mine and saw a Van Halen concert, figured out from watching him how he was doing certain things. And then I really got serious about playing. And then once, once I got into the Van Halen realm of my, uh, of my uh, development, that's when it got into five and six hour a day type of practice, seven, eight hour a day types of practicing. And I really just started to become even more in love with music and more in love with the guitar. And then really uh, that just got into, that led to me listening to other types of players and listening to guys like Pat Metheny and then uh, Steve Ray Vaughan, John Schofield and Alan Holdsworth. And, uh, you know, just really just uh, embracing almost anything I would listen to and that's really how it started. So I, I, I guess Jimmy Page was my first influence. Van Halen was my first major influence. He was the guy that really got me serious. And then pretty much any significant guitarist you can name uh, has in some way, shape or form, influenced me along the way. Excellent. Now, you and your brother, what is it your brother plays? Uh, he doesn't actually play. He was. It's interesting because... Uh, when we were kids, we had a we had a sort of a, a small drum kit at the house, and I I always wanted to be a drummer. I was I I, I could play along with simple stuff like Beatles records and uh, Rolling Stones records and things like that, and had a little bit of basic independence. And so I felt like drumming was was easy. I actually enjoyed drumming more than more than guitar. But when my father had said you guys should take music lessons, my brother said drums first so i ended up playing <laughs> i ended up playing guitar by default but uh uh yeah he doesn't really play i he ended up being the singer in my in a band that we had formed years ago called how to and uh so he became a frontman, really but um but but what, it was interesting that even at a very young age we were we were writing songs we were writing songs way before we could even play instruments Excellent. Yes, I read that um, you guys had a, a band for a short period of time that were very Van Halen influenced. So I was, I was interested very, to know about that. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. We were um, we were playing the club circuit throughout the eighties as kids. Practically, I mean, we started when we were we were playing live. Uh, my brother was actually still in school, and I had just gotten out of school, so we were doing the you know, cover band circuit, but, but we specialized in Van Halen just because, you know, I wanted so badly to play that stuff because I was kind of the first kid on the block that was able to do a lot of it. So uh, I wanted to be the big shot that could play the stuff that most guitar players couldn't play. Um, but that eventually led to us doing demos of our own songs. And we actually did have some, uh, some meetings with record labels. We were under the wing of CBS, uh, records for about a 90 day development period. And we were just trying to, you know, we were trying to get a record deal. That's all we wanted. We just wanted to get a deal. And when I, around 87, the late, late 87, I uh, submitted a, a demo to Mike Varney, who had a record label called Shrapnel uh, that featured, you know, high level guitarists. And he also had a column in Guitar Player Magazine called Spotlight, where he would feature three unknown guitars from around the world every month. And I submitted 
a demo of me just sort of blowing over the backing tracks, clearly not expecting to get uh, selected at all, just because there, there are so many great players out there. And I, but it was just something else to do because we were looking for any avenue in the industry. So I just, it was just one random thing that I did. And uh, the only, the only thing that I can add to that is that I sent the tape to him. Um, I sent a tape to his PO box as, as you know, per requested, but I also sent one FedEx overnight to guitar player magazine, knowing that somebody would have to sign for it and actually have it in their hands. So I just figured I'd increase my chances a little bit and it worked because the very next day I got a phone call from Mike Varney and he said, yeah, I got your demo. I really like what you're doing. I'm going to feature you. And also, would you be interested in, uh, you know, signing to my label? So to me, that was huge because I knew that Mike Varney had discovered guys like Ingve Malmsteen and Paul Gilbert and Vinnie Moore and Tony McAlpine. And these guys are all unbelievable players to me. So I was just, I, you know, I couldn't even believe that I was considered part of that, uh, that class. So that was really exciting. Um, and it was exciting because of the fact that, you know, I felt like I was validated as a, as a serious player. And I also felt like, um, it was great to have a record deal, even though it was an independent label that sort of specialized, had a sort of specialty thing. Um, it was still a record deal. So that was exciting. Now you've performed with various different musicians throughout the years. Um, I'm interested to know what you think you've learned from performing with Dennis Chambers. Dennis Chambers is honestly one of the best musicians I've ever played with. He's, he might be my favorite musician period of anyone. Um, Dennis is, it's really hard to put it into words because when you get into high level players, you realize that there, there are high level players that lean towards the technical aspect of things and are thinking from the head a lot. And then there are tech and then there are high level players who are really thinking or coming more from the heart. And the ultimate high level musician is somebody who is playing from the heart and utilizing all of the skills that they have that at one point had been developed, you know, intellectually. And Dennis epitomizes that in that you can tell that when he plays, it's all heart, uh, even though uh, he's got access to all, all of his, you know, amazing abilities. So he's like the ultimate combination. It, it's just, you know, it just epitomizes the perfect musician as far as I'm concerned. So that was, so what I've learned from him was what I've tried to learn from him. What I try to take from him is, uh, you know, trying to have that ability. It's very difficult sometimes when you're on stage and you're, uh, you know, you're anxious and people are, people have ex certain expectations of you and there's all kinds of stuff going through your head sometimes about, you know, should I play this? You know, I've got three guys with their arms crossed in front of me and I have an impressive lick yet. And now I can see they're getting disappointed. Maybe I should rip this lick out in front of them. But if I do that, is that really from the heart and so forth? So it's always a little bit of a challenge. And Dennis has really helped teach me to just really just let go of all that and become just who you are just be who you are. And don't worry about trying to, uh, you know, impress anyone or trying to, 
feel obligated to anyone and instead just be obligated to yourself in being a truthful musician. Interesting, very interesting indeed. Now, what part did, um, did Jennifer Batten play in uh, getting you the Michael Jackson gig, essentially? Uh, she played the whole part. <laughs> she, uh, she was uh, solely responsible for it. Uh, I met her, we ran into each other at a NAMM show years ago, uh, early 90s, I think, and, uh, you know, mutual admiration. I was a fan of hers. She was a fan of, of the stuff that I was doing. And she said that uh, there was a chance that she might be stepping off that gig and that if so, she would she would totally recommend me for it, which I thought was extremely flattering. Um, and the short version of the story is that she didn't eventually have to leave temporarily. She didn't leave permanently, but she did leave temporarily because her mother got ill. Uh, so I was basically the guy that, that stepped in. I, I didn't even have to really audition because they they trusted her you know, they trusted her, uh, her knowing. So, uh, that's how it went down. It was a very scary situation because they, Jennifer had told me that she was going to be leaving at some point, but that she didn't know when. So she was kind enough to send me all the demos and all of her specific guitar parts. She even went as far as to record a whole a rehearsal of the show with the with the recorder near her amp so I could hear specifically what she was doing. And uh, she sent that to me. And so it enabled me to get very prepared. And I did prepare for a while, but then weeks went by and I didn't hear anything. And then months went by and I didn't hear anything. And I was turning down a lot of gigs because back then, you know, before cell phones, uh, you sort of had to be at home if you're going to get that call. And I didn't want to be somewhere else and miss the call. So I was turning down gigs literally and kind of putting my whole career on hold for, for the, the hopes of this phone call. And eventually I just said, I can't keep waiting around. So I just started getting back to my life. And then more months went by and I, st and I, had, I wasn't even listening to the material anymore. I had forgotten a lot of it. And suddenly on a Monday night around eight o'clock, uh, I get a, a very frantic phone call from the music director from the Michael Jackson organization. And they said, um, we need you on an airplane tomorrow morning at six o'clock <laughs> and uh, it was already eight o'clock at night and I, I lived two hours from the airport and I had to be at the airport two hours in advance. So this, this gave me about, that meant I would have to leave my house around two o'clock in the morning. It's eight o'clock at night. That gives me six hours to completely prepare for the Michael Jackson tour and uh, pack my clothes and make sure that I have strings and all, all the things that I need for a long-term uh, touring scenario. Uh, so it was really frightening and uh, it was difficult. So I get there. So I, I start preparing and I'm just sort of folding clothes and putting my Walkman on and listening to material and picking up the guitar and then doing laundry and uh, trying to cram it all into six hours. I arrived in Amsterdam, which is where the gig was. The gig was actually scheduled for Wednesday. So just to put, pers just to put clarity on this, I get the phone call Monday night. I have to be on a plane. Tuesday morning for a performance in Amsterdam in front of 65,000 people went for a Wednesday. Wow. So, yeah. So I arrive in Amsterdam, uh, early afternoon, Tuesday. I had a couple more hours to sort of listen to the material, but, uh, the truth is the majority of that day was, was, uh, you know, getting acquainted with management and getting acquainted with the, the entourage and so forth. So 
I didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare, but I had listened on the airplane and listened enough that I felt like maybe I could get through it. Wednesday was the day of the gig. We had a rehearsal in the morning around 11 or 12, maybe. And uh, so we start running the show. And I got, we got through about four of the four or five of the songs and, and it was going pretty well. And I felt like, Hey, you know, I was starting to relax into feeling like, I think I can do this. This is really going to happen. I can really do this. So the production manager walks over to me and he says, yeah, it sounds great. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about some of the choreography. <laughs> so that was crazy because there was a ton of choreography. As a matter of fact, Jennifer's role in that show, uh, per, you know, required her to interact with Michael probably more so than anybody in the band. So there was tons of things that I had to do. And there was, uh, so I, I ended up having a cheat sheet that surrounded my pedal board that was like, you know, because it actually, it wasn't just learning the songs. It was actually having to know which presets that she was using on her Digitech unit. Cause I was using her rig and you know, so I would have like song one verse preset 031, uh, you know, pre-chorus, uh, preset 050, uh, and then second verse, preset 031, second pre-chorus, 050, step forward, spin around twice, wait for dancers to pass by, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so it was like, it wasn't just learning the songs, it was learning the correct sounds and learning some of this choreography. And the craziest part of the choreography was that um, this is all happening the day of my first show. I'm learning all this the first day, you know, literally a few hours before we're going to perform. And the music director, part of my choreography included having to operate a pyro guitar, literally an explosive device on stage. So long story short, this guitar shoots an explosive like flame out of the headstock and, uh, and I have to control it with these, these three different switches and you have to kind of, ignite one switch or you have to hit a switch that ignites the next switch that ignites the third switch and you have to do this sequentially and you have to and i just remember that the production manager says he's explaining it to me really fast and then he says um once you get out front wait for michael he'll come up to you and then you point the headstock out towards the audience and and hit the final switch and make sure that you point it away from your face or else you'll you'll blow your face off <laughs> so <laughs> It was a crazy, crazy experience. It really was. Um, but it was a great experience because it really showed, you know, one of the things that musicians have to realize is that, yeah, sometimes we get into a, uh, an unrealistic uh, view of our, of our abilities because if you're sitting in a bedroom playing guitar and you're, you're comfortable and you've got the temperature just right and you've got your favorite sweater on and your perfect amp and, your perfect uh, guitar and everything's ideal. And that, yeah, a lot of guys can sound great, but the realistic world of, of being a professional musician usually means that you're always up against tons of unexpected and uncomfortable obstacles. Um, so it was really good for me to have that much thrown at me and, and be sort of thrown to the wolves in that way and have to come out, you know, come out standing somehow. <laughs> And I bet you were absolutely, you were totally battle tested after that, Greg. What, what an experience! <laughs> well, it was great because um, the first the first couple of shows were, were definitely 
you know, anxiety driven, but as the, as the tour went on, I was, I was out for, I was only out there for about five weeks, but we would do about three gigs a week. And by the second week it was starting to, starting to come together. And I had a lot of help from Jennifer's, um, tech who would remind me, he'd tap me on the shoulder before certain, you know, certain things he'd say, Hey, there's that third verse is coming up. Remember you have to run over to Michael and do this thing and blah, 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 blah. So yes, it was, uh, it was definitely challenging, but at the same time, it was something I would never, um, you know, I, I, it's something I really, uh, value. Absolutely. What was your interaction like with um, the man himself and Michael Jackson that period of time? Was he quite encouraging? What was what was he like to go on with? Uh, he was. He's really. It was amazing. I mean, he's one of the most amazing people that ever that in, in the entertainment business ever. Uh, he was interesting. He was very quiet. I, we didn't really. None of the band members really interacted with him a whole lot. Um, he had sort of a select few people that he would surround himself with and we didn't have a lot of access to him other than right before the show generally um and even then he was very quiet and it was very interesting to watch him literally transform the moment his foot would hit the stage mm -hmm. into this person that just owned the stage so he would go he went from a sort of introverted quiet person to just michael jackson as as we know him and it was amazing to watch that um and he was also very perceptive. He was, you know, he wasn't just an entertainer. He really, there was actually, one of the things that blew my mind about him was uh, a lot of the guitar parts that I had to play were more rhythm based, obviously. And the band was really great in terms of just severe pocket, you know, just, uh, just the grooves and the, and the pocket was insane. Um, and I don't remember what song it was, but I do remember that after one of the shows, Michael walks right up to me which was already a little intimidating. And he says something like, um, you know, you're, you're doing great, but uh, the rhythm part that you're playing this particular song, if you could just, you're a little on top of the beat, if you could pull it back a little bit, that would be, that would be great. And I just remember thinking, how is he here? How is he paying attention to that? I mean, this is a show where, you know, it, it's, it's so much bigger than life. There's, there's dancers and there's, there's things flying around and there's lights and, and, you know, he's all over the stage. The fact that he would, the fact that he's listening that way was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, he was amazing. Um, I had to perform the beat it solo solo with him every night. And I had to do this with, with a, with a blonde haired wig on that was completely, uh, covered in fiber optics. So the, it would light up the whole stadium. And because of technology at that time, the fiber optic cable that they had to, I had to have this huge cable hooked up to me that would run up the back of my shirt. And whenever I'd go out to do anything, uh, some of the crew guys would have to feed this cable to me, including the beat it solo. So I not only had to play the beat it solo while walking side by side with Michael Jackson, uh, but I had to perform it well. And I had to do it with this cumbersome wig uh, kit on and uh yeah so that that was interesting and there was one night that i performed with him and during the beat it solo he looked at me this is in the middle of the solo i remember he looked at me and he just had this look on his face as if to stay as if to say uh yeah you're playing you're playing cool but you need to step up your energy just step it up and he grabs my shoulders and like spins me around 
in the middle of the solo. So of course my hands fly off the, the fretboard and I have no idea what that could have sounded like in front of, uh, you know, 140,000 Watts of power. But, uh, <laughs> it, it was a pretty scary, uh, that was a pretty scary interaction with him, but all in all, he's, you know, he's, he's amazing. He was amazing. Great. It's, it's, it's so interesting. I could talk, talk to you all day about that alone. Um, now, fast forward a few years. I mean, you, the, the amount of people, as I mentioned earlier, that you worked with. Uh, take us back to your time uh, working with Justin Timberlake. Uh, the Justin Timberlake thing came a few years later. That was great. I mean, Justin's a, a great guy. He's super talented and multi-talented. And um, that came about through the NSYNC gig. So I guess the, you know, the chronological order of my pop sideman uh, thing was that after Michael Jackson, I then got the Enrique Iglesias uh, guitar spot in 2000. Michael Jackson thing was in 96 or 97, 96, I think 96. And then uh, uh, a few years later, I got the Enrique thing in 2000. That lasted for a year. And then I, took the InSync gig, which was offered to me in 2001, and did two tours with them. And then after InSync, Justin Timberlake went solo. And uh, to, you know, as flattering as it was, I was the only guy from that, from the InSync band, really, that he asked to come over to his solo thing, other than the music director, Kevin Antunes. And, and that was great. Uh, the only weird thing about it was that I was in the middle of recording the album Extraction, and it was already years past due. Um, that album was supposed to have come out in 2000, but because of all the touring, I couldn't do it. And honestly, at that point, I was starting to get a little bit worn down by the by the touring thing. And when I say worn down, I don't mean physically. I mean that there's a little bit of a an emptiness. That there's something unfulfilling about not being part of the creative process. And it was good for me to realize that because you're out there making all this money and you're touring and playing places and great hotels and all this stuff. And it's almost like a vacation. It's a very strange situation to be in where you work all these years to get your chops and get your skills way up. And then you get these gigs that don't require any of that ability and they pay you a ton of money to sort of play simple parts. So in a certain way, it's cool at first because it's like a vacation, but after a while it becomes, um, you know, just not fulfilling. I, I started to really miss being an artist and being, you know, writing songs, and, uh, you know, pushing the envelope of my own music, you know, musicality. And so I kind of just, I did the, the Justin thing for a while. And then I just said, you know, respectfully, I'm going to step off of this and get back to finishing my album and just get back to being Greg Howe, the, uh, the artist. Now, tell us about what you're up to, to nowadays regarding, um, well, Greg Howe as an artist and just everything in general. Um, well, recently I, I put a, a rock band together called Marigold. Um, and this is something that a lot of people probably don't know, although I've tried to say it publicly as much as possible. Uh, you know, what got me into music in the very first place was always songs. You know, I was, I've always been, I, I love music. I love vocal music. I, I've always loved it. Um, those were the, the, the stuff that got me excited about guitar when I was a kid were 
you know, they're cool bands, rock bands. Um, and even when I got signed to Shrapnel, I was, you know, performing with my rock band. And I actually had to work the deal out with my with the record label to see to it that I could do two of those albums. My original deal with Shrapnel was four album deal. Uh, two of them ended up being, I, I required two of them to be with my band. And then two of them were instrumental. Uh, so I have wanted to put a vocal band together for a long time. I've been wanting to get back to that for a long, long time. And, and I, when I say that, I don't mean that I want to abandon my instrumental, the instrumental realm of what I do. I, I, I've really grown fond of that as well. But I also really like uh, the vocal situation. I like being able to reach people, you know, and, and not just be playing constantly for other musicians, but to play for people who just want to hear cool songs. Um, I like the idea of being able to get on stage and, and have fun and not just have to be planted in one place in order to make sure that, you know, I execute everything clearly. <laughs> so, yeah, it was nice to get back to to this so that uh, I, I put a band together called Marigold with uh, an amazing singer by the name of Megan Krauss, who's on lead vocals. Uh, and that album came out a couple of years ago. And I'm currently in the studio working on the second one. Great stuff. We'll look forward to hearing the, uh, the album itself. Greg, thanks very much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing all those stories. And no doubt uh, we'll do this again and uh, we'll, we'll talk a bit more. Um, we'll get you on with your guitar the next time and we'll, we'll hear some of those licks that you've created over the years. That'd be great. You got it. There you have it. Mr. Greg Howe, very much appreciative of the fact that Greg joined us. And if you're noticing, that's the kind of podcast I like. I don't have to ask many questions. I just listen to the guest as they tell some amazing stories from a phenomenal career. Uh, a very, very humble guy. And I tell you what, once again, said it at the top of the programme, a great insight in his career. Uh, big thanks to Nora Germain, of course. Keep supporting this podcast. Love you guys interacting on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those social media platforms. And of course, the central place that holds all of those things together is scottcowie.com. I just noticed actually a couple of weeks back that we we are obviously now on a site called Audioboom. It's obvious to a few of you, but not obvious to me. So that means we're on SoundCloud, Audioboom, iTunes. There's about 10, 15 different ways uh, you can get this uh, podcast. Uh, anywhere that does them podcasts, keep supporting us on iTunes as well, in which you can rate, review, subscribe. It's all good, and we will see you guys next week.